0: Now we're going to go turn to our scripture reading for today. Matthew 25 from 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life.
1: Good morning, Regan.
0: So as a child in Sunday school,
1: long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was taught this whole idea that I need to invite Jesus into my heart to become a Christian so that one day when I die, I will get to go to heaven and be with him. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I don't know if it's all done completely different over here, but that was pretty much the gist of a lot of the messages when I was growing up. And as I would say to that, what a bowl of raisins. For those of you that don't know me, raisins kind of rank high or at the top of the list of things I really don't like and think are meaningless. And if you look carefully at the word raisin, it has the word sin in there for a reason maybe. But there's just so much wrong with that statement and it's something that was well-intentioned and there's something that there's meaning behind. But just looking at it as a statement, there's a lot of things that are just messed up. And I'm just going to mention three of them and really focus on the third one. The first one is the idea of inviting Jesus into my heart. Now, you really have to be careful when you say that to children because children tend to be literal thinkers, And you go to Sunday school one day and your teacher says you've got to invite Jesus into your heart. And later that night, as a parent, you wander into your kid's bedroom and your kid's like distraught and crying because he heard a noise and he thought Jesus was coming to climb literally into his heart. So the literal idea of that is just terrifying as a kid unless people explain it like really carefully. Then secondly, it's crazy from a biological perspective. Because, okay kids, don't worry, it's not a literal thing, it's a metaphorical thing, it is the idea or the feeling of him living in your heart. But we know today that thoughts and feelings actually take place in your brain, not your heart. Like we always talk about it, and romantic cards have pictures of hearts which look nothing like actual hearts. Valentine's Day would be a whole different excursion if we stuck pictures of actual hearts on cards and gave them to people. So we need to kind of kill that bad theology and kind of catch up with modern science into the time. So I've chatted to the Sunday school teachers and from now we're going to be inviting Jesus to come and live in our brain. Which is more biologically correct. But the real problem that I have with that statement and really what I want to give a bit of focus on today is the idea that it gives that some action or some commitment or some change that happens now. So this idea of inviting Jesus in, this idea of making a commitment, doing something now leads to this thing that happens one day when we die sometime in the future, and it's going to lead to some kind of reward or future happening. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be in heaven. Everything is going to be gold, and it's going to be amazing. There's going to be no raisins. And I think so many people believe this, and maybe not necessarily in a way that they would say that's what they believe, but certainly in the way that it's often lived out. Why are you a Christian? So that one day when I die, I can be with Jesus. And I think if that's all there is to it, if all it is about one day when we die that we go to be with Jesus and we get cool stuff, then I can help you right there. And I think like maybe if that's all that it is about, we should just kill you right now, and then you can go there and start enjoying. And I mean, that is a very messed up theology. But if we take it directly from what we preach and from what a lot of people believe, like I make a commitment now so that one day it all happens then, it all happens when I die and go to heaven, then we should just kill everyone and just get on with what it's actually about. I see a lot of people going, I hope we're not going there. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray this morning that if this is an area in my life that I have blinkers on, if this is an idea that even if I don't necessarily say it, I believe it, I live as if it's true, then I pray that you'll remove that today. I pray that you'll speak truth to me. I pray that the words that come today will be freeing, will be enriching, will be challenging. Help us to hear only what you want to say today. Help us to ignore anything else. In Jesus' name, amen. So the big question I'm going to be looking at is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus if it is more than just coming forward at a meeting and saying a prayer? And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus for right now if it is more than this thing that only happens one day in the future when I die? And this is fundamental stuff, but as I kind of alluded to before, it's also stuff that a large portion of the church has gotten fundamentally wrong. And the greater church, not Regen, because obviously we all get this, but... A lot of examples and a lot of teachings out there of people that really just aren't getting that. For example, this question, is Christianity all about grace or is it all about works? Just think about that for a moment. Think of your own answer to that. Is Christianity all about grace or is Christianity all about works? And I imagine I don't have to try too hard to paint a picture of how the message has been abused when the focus has been put on works ideas or preaching things like you've got to earn your way to heaven you've got to try harder you've got to do more stuff a big list of all the stuff you're not allowed to do and then the idea of holding your list up against someone else's so that you can judge them for all the things that they are not not doing but there's also when the churches and groups and people who kind of go all to the extreme on grace and say everything is grace it's just about grace to the exclusion of works and The kind of messages that maybe come out of that are do whatever you want, say whatever you want, watch whatever you want, it's all grace. There's no trying, there's no striving, there's no working, there's no doing because grace. And grace becomes this almost imaginary, surrealistic idea of this thing that is there that covers us for everything we do and so allows us to live like we want because grace. Grace covers its cool, grace. Grace. And it sounds great, and I think especially in kind of the me-focused environment that we grow up in, in terms of culture, in terms of the world where nobody wants to be told what to do. We all have to be open and affirming and accepting and validating and loving, no matter what people's choices are around us. But then at some point, there is no space for rules or laws, and ultimately no space for right and wrong, because each one of us starts to determine, I start to decide what is right and wrong starts to get defined by me. And how dare you call my choice wrong? And so back to that question, is it all about grace or is it all about works? And the answer is, of course, yes. When we talk about salvation, when we talk about returning to right relationship with God, when we talk about being in good standing with God, none of this is achieved by anything that we do in terms of receiving it or arriving there. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing that we can do ourselves in terms of being good, doing nice things, earning the right to be in good, standing with God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it like this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so this idea that getting there, that arriving, that getting to the point of salvation, it's all about Jesus. And it's grace. It's all completely grace, undeserved, this gift that is just given to us that we could never match up to, that we could never earn if we tried, if we were good for the rest of our lives, if we did a thousand good deeds a day. It's all Jesus. It's all grace. How do we get to the point of salvation? But then if you take it a step further and you look at things like being a Christian, like continuing your relationship with God through Jesus, like growing as a Christian, like continuing to receive eternal life, There's a verse that says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we've been created to do good works, but we've just heard that it's not by works, so that no man can boast. Does anyone know what that second verse in the Bible is? Directly after the first verse in that Bible. So it's totally not works, and it's totally works. And it seems to contradict But it's the idea that what Jesus did, arriving at the point, receiving salvation, getting there, all completely done by Jesus. God's gift to us, unearnable. Even if that's a word or not, I don't know. But it's all Jesus. But then from that point on, we were created in Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. Now that you've received salvation, now that you are good with God, live out your salvation through your daily lives, live out your salvation through works. The works don't gain you anything. The works demonstrate what has already been gained, what has already been given. And so, salvation—the gift of God through faith by grace—all Jesus. Living out your salvation, works, works, works. A couple of verses that back that up: James 1:22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. A few verses down religion that god accepts is this look after orphans and widows which is again works matthew chapter 7 verse 24 to 27 therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock but everyone who hears these words of mine And does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice, everyone who lives this stuff out, everyone who does what I am teaching is like somebody whose life is built on a solid rock. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, And light must be lighty. Matthew seven fifteen 15 to 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Just idea after idea after idea of things that we need to do, things that we need to be as followers of Jesus. And if we kind of pull it back a step, the greatest commandment in the Bible is the commandment to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Matthew 22 In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Be known by the love you have for each other. This is the mark. This is the tattoo of a Christian that people will see love in the way you live, in the way you speak, in the way you enact with people. And then the idea that love is not a feeling. 1 Corinthians 13, you've got that whole passage, love is patient, love is kind. Most of those things are not feeling things. You don't ever feel like being patient. You don't often maybe feel kind. You don't often feel self-controlled. You are patient. It's an act of patience that you live out. That is love. An act of kindness. An act of self-control. These are things that we do. We call to be salt. We call to be light. We call to be the fragrance of Christ. And then the last thing, love is a doing. DC Talk 15 verse 20. DC Talk, that band that came up with that great song, Love, love, love is a verb. And so we called to be salt, we called to be light, we called to be fragrance. All these things that add to the environment around. All these things that add flavor, that add the way forward, that help people to live better. We called to forgive our enemies. We called to love our neighbors. Matthew 25 passage. We called to look after the least of these. Who is hungry, who is thirsty, who is in hospital, who is naked, who is broken. Even the smallest act of kindness giving a glass of water, having a conversation, finding a name, hearing a story. As you do these for those people, the least of these, those seen by the world as being the least of these, and maybe it's changed from the passage, maybe we could write a whole new modern passage and the least of these would be different people. Maybe it would be refugees, maybe it would be those involved in sexual trafficking, and we can fit in a whole bunch of other people. As you do acts of kindness and goodwill and love to the least of these, so you are doing it to me. And just in that vein, one of our friends, some of you may know him from church this week, his dad had an accident and he's rushed to hospital and sent out a message to a bunch of his friends. The next thing I hear, I get a text from him saying that John Sharp has driven him up to the hospital. And I wasn't surprised at all. I was like, of course, that's John Sharp. That's what he does. I may have been surprised, perhaps, perhaps if I heard that it was some others of you. I may have been surprised if I heard that it was some of my friends back home. It's like, oh, that's a bit strange. That's not like them. You may have been surprised if you heard that it was me driving this guy up to see his friend. I might have said things like this. I'd really like to, but I have a root canal tomorrow. True story. Well, Friday. I'd really like to, but I have something on that day. I really want to help, but I don't have the money to. And that's my favorite one, I think. I don't have the money to. Would you have the money if you too was in town or Sophia Stevens? Would you have the time if suddenly Mumford and Sons were playing down the road or if Tim Keller was speaking? And then suddenly when it becomes something like that, and I don't know who your person is or your band or your speaker or whatever, but suddenly the perspective changes a bit. If there's somebody I want to see, suddenly I can find the money. If there's a band I want to go to, suddenly I can find the time. Trip overseas, a new car, upgrade the house. Suddenly, the impossible becomes possible because of the who or the what. That changes everything. Now, the Matthew 25 passage is such a shocking passage, and I imagine would have been shocking to the listeners as Jesus said it, because the who or the what is made known, and it's Jesus, God. If God was in town, would you have enough time? Jesus was playing, okay, he doesn't play, but if Jesus was doing a talk, and what Jesus is saying is, I'm here, I'm there, I'm the person in front of you. I don't look like me, and I'm the kind of me that you want to often stay away from or avoid, but the shockingness of the story is Jesus saying, actually, it's me. What is your response going to be? I want to end off with two pictures of church, and I'm very nervous about technology, but if all goes well, The first one is from a preach I sometimes do called Baywatch Church. I usually preach it at night. I know it was giving us grief earlier. Is it going to happen? It's going to be worth the wait, I'm telling you. That was worth it, right? Okay. Cool. You better put that off before we cause people to stumble. Baywatch Church, the idea of this picture of a lifeguard station on a beach. I never watched Baywatch, so I, I'm just talking from stories people have told me. I mean, I made some one episode, it's a half episode, some kid almost drowned. But there's the idea that there's this lifeguard station in the middle of the beach, and when somebody's in trouble, drowning in the ocean, they scream out, and then suddenly, David Hasselhoff. Comes running out and he grabs his luminous orange plastic board thing. And he runs down the beach in slow motion, which I never really understood because the guy's drowning. (laughs) But you've got the center at the beach where the lifeguards meet every day. I don't know what's there, so I'm just kind of guessing some of the stuff. But I imagine that it's a place where as you sign up for duty, you kind of go and sign in. Maybe you go get dressed there. You go get ready for the beach stuff. The lifeguards' hat on the beach is probably where you have a meal. You probably have like your sandwiches for lunch, and you go hang out there. It's probably where all the lifeguards get together at the start of the day, and they have a big lifeguard pep talk, and maybe they sing lifeguard songs, I don't know. But it's the place where the duties are assigned, and so you are going to be running in slow motion down the beach, you're going to be on the speedboat, you're going to be sitting in that chair, jet skis, all that kind of thing, so everyone gets their jobs. They maybe learn some new lifeguard saving tips or techniques or things that are going to improve the thing or help them to save people better or rescue people or whatever. But whatever takes place there, everything that takes place in the lifeguard center is done for the purpose of what happens on the beach. It's not done so they get a better lifeguard center. It's not done so that they can get more people into the lifeguard center. Everything that happens when the lifeguards meet together is done for the purpose of protecting And rescuing people on the beach. Because that's where it happens. And different people, different communities, it looks in different ways. But sometimes this becomes the lifeguard center. The church becomes this place where our whole focus has been the church. This meeting, this time, this building. And everything we do is about making this happen and trying to get more people in here. Whereas if you understand scripture, if you understand the Bible, this happens for the purpose of everything that happens out there. Because there are people drowning out there. There are people dying. There are people that in a few minutes or a few hours or whatever are going to be at risk. And our lives are called to go and change theirs and to go and bring Jesus to them. And so that what we do here on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening is we strengthen ourselves and we learn maybe some tips on how to do some life-saving a bit better. We learn more about who Jesus is for ourselves so that we can share it better with other people. We sing songs to get excited and passionate and remember about this God that we're serving. But all of it has to be about what happens when we leave the church building. The second story I want to tell is one of my favorites, and it's the beginning of the story I imagine some of you might know. I don't think I told it here before. I may have. But this idea of there's a little kid on the beach and the tide has gone out and there's just hundreds of thousands of starfish that are baking in the sun and they're busy dying. And this little kid is standing there picking up a starfish and throwing it into the sea and then picking up another starfish and throwing it into the sea. And this older man has been watching this for half an hour. And eventually curiosity just gets the better of him and he goes up to this kid and he says, what are you doing? And the child looks up at him, picks up a starfish, and he says, I'm saving the starfish, throws it into the sea. And the old man kind of draws his attention down the beach, hundreds and thousands of starfish just lining the beach. And he looks at the little child, he says, what difference are you making? Hundreds of thousands, and you're going to maybe throw 30 into the ocean, maybe 50, maybe 100. And this is the climax that we all know, like the little kid bends down and picks up a starfish and Steve Curtis Chapman starts playing in the background and (laughs) looks at the old man, says, I'm making a difference to this one, throws it in the ocean, picks up another one, I'm making a difference to this one, and he throws it into the ocean. What if everyone that was meant to be on the beach was on the beach? What if it's not just one little kid saving starfish? What if it's not just the church's mission team or just the people that are gifted with evangelism or the pastor or the worship leader or the youth leader or whatever it is? What if each one of us and every one of the millions of Christians around the world, Monday to Saturday, were out on the beach picking up starfish, throwing them into the ocean? What if we were getting to know our neighbors, inviting them around for a meal, demonstrating Jesus just in the way that we love them well? in the way that we visit their kids when they're in hospital, and the way that we offer them a car when we see they need it. What if we took our colleagues out for lunch, just heard some of their stories, shared a little bit of ours, We're somebody that they built up trust with and when their family falls apart or their dad's in hospital, we're the first person that they call because they know we care about them. That is a picture of what Christianity is. That is a picture of the church that Jesus imagined. For the life of me, I can't believe when Jesus thinks of church, he thinks of a meeting on a Sunday morning. But I think he gets excited when his people are meeting on a Sunday morning. And he sees them getting excited, and he sees them building relationship, and he sees them learning some new things. And he sees them just falling in love with Jesus once again, and he sees them being reminded of what this is all about. When he sees them walk out of the building and realize that they are church, that church continues to happen church is something we are it's something we do it's not a meeting we attend I think that's when God gets really excited and he goes that's what it is that's what I came and lived here for that's what I died here for not so that one day when you die you get this miraculous reward but so that every day we start to see the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven so this place this moment that we're having together right now is not the thing This is the refreshment station. The thing is out there. So works, 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 works. And let me end with a passage that may seem to contradict all of that. From Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's a sense of works there. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? God, look at all the great things that I've done in your name. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And you can see it again in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. If you speak in the tongues of angels, if you perform miracles, if you look after the poor, if you do any of these things, but there's no love, it means nothing. None of the doing means anything without the knowing. John 15, the story of the vine and the branches, being rooted to Jesus. And what that does is it takes away a lot of the striving and the trying and the doing or the trying hard to do. If we're rooted to Jesus, if we are constantly connected to him, then he will fill us and he will build us and he will give us everything we need to be able to do all the doing we need to do. But relationship with Jesus is the key. And if it's genuine, then it will naturally lead to relationship with the world. So stop coming to church. Don't really. But be the church. Be who you are. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for everyone that is here today, and I want to pray that nobody leaves here with a sense of guilt or feeling chastised or anything like that. But I just pray that if there were people today that just needed a tweak in understanding that church is not this thing that we attend, church is this thing that we are, If someone just needed a nudge to live this thing out, just by connecting to people outside, just by being intentional, just by staying connected with you, then I pray that that can happen. I pray that this can be a good thing. I pray that this can be a positive thing. Father, I pray that your church will get out onto the beaches and start throwing starfish into the waves. And Father, I thank you that around the world, hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people are doing that already. I thank you that in this room, There are so many people that are doing that in the most amazing of ways. We want to celebrate that. We want to be excited by that. We want to learn from those who are really doing it well, and even those who are really just feeling like they're struggling along. Father, let this be a call of who we are, a call of identity, a call towards something big and glorious and amazing, and help us to stay connected to you. Those of us that are feeling really far away, those of us that aren't feeling connected to you, just meet us in this place, in this time. While we gathered with other strong people, that when we go out again, we can feel some of their strength. We can maybe carry the load a little easier. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.